Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be back in the pulpit to deliver God's word for us this morning. For those of you that are new to our church, I'd like to personally welcome you. My name is Jeffrey Fisher, and I'm the pastoral intern here at Hawaii Kai Church, uh, which means I'm learning how to be a shepherd of God's people. And I just want to take a moment to thank you, church family, uh, for all the kindness, goodness, and patience you show me over the past two years. You've been helping me grow in so many ways, helping me grow as a pastor in training, and I'm truly grateful for all your love and support. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to the book of Job. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Job's short but remarkable profile and seeing how it's relevant to us as Christians. Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5 is our passage this morning, and it can be found on page 417 if you're using the church's Bible. Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. But before we begin, uh, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you and you alone are the God of this universe, and you reign over all your creation. From the bottom of the ocean floor to the farthest reaches of the heavens, everything has been created by you through your spoken word. And we call upon you this morning to speak once again and to create once again. Create in us hearts that are more holy, more sanctified, more in love with you and your ways. Creating us hearts that are mirroring Jesus' own heart more and more. We trust that you will, Lord, because you say in your word that you're making a people for your own possession who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. May this will of yours be done here at Hawaii Church, and may it be done around the world this morning. May the church of Jesus Christ glorify you as we live out your word in our lives. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, who should we say is great in this world? How should we measure that person's greatness? I believe most of you know Time Magazine, and if so, you're probably familiar with their annual issue highlighting the person of the year. In years past, the news magazine has chosen the likes of U.S. presidents, such as Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. They've also picked some of the richest people our nation has ever seen, like Jeff Bezos, Melinda Gates, and Elon Musk. And they have even selected leaders outside the U.S., which ironically, I found Vladimir Zelensky was on the cover of last year's issue, 15 years after Vladimir Putin was selected. Time says that this annual issue features a person, a group, an idea, or an object that for better or for worse has done the most to influence the events of the year. These are the people the world is noticing, and more often than not, those that they're cheering for. They are the rich, the powerful, the politically savvy, the most influential. 
And in our day, it really doesn't matter how they made it to the top. What ultimately matters is that they're there and that they've made it. And so they're celebrated and they're praised. But is making it to the top of the business or political world the indicator of greatness? And should we, as Christians, be striving for this at all costs? Does the world actually have it right when it comes to defining greatness? Well, I believe God's word is going to point us in an entirely different direction this morning. I believe it tells us instead that true greatness is related to one's character. That the one who is truly great is the one who fears God. The one whose whole heart, life, and world is centered on and formed by him. That that is what marks a truly great person in God's sight. Let's begin with the reading of our text. Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It reads as follows. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." Here we read of a man that fears the Lord greatly. This is what defines Job. We know this because from the very outset of the book, this is made very, very prominent. God's word gives us four remarkable descriptors of Job. It says, one, he is blameless. Two, he is upright. Three, he fears God, which means four, he turns away from evil. This is one remarkable description. And I believe what is central to it is that Job fears God. Simply put, I think he is blameless, upright, and turns away from evil because he fears God. And so if fearing the Lord is core to who Job is, then to understand the man, it is important to know what fearing the Lord means. Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13 provides some clarification by including some other actions closely related to fearing the Lord. It says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. So we see that fearing the Lord complements this obedience, love, and service directed to him. Moreover, Gerald Wilson helpfully explains what it means to fear the Lord in his commentary when he writes, Fear of Yahweh is more than simple terror or even reverent awe of the otherness of the deity. It is the appropriate humility with which humans recognize and accept 
their absolute dependence on God for life, forgiveness, restoration, and salvation. So the one that fears the Lord in humility depends on the Lord to save and forgive them from sin. And then in response to God's saving work, depends on him still to love, to obey, and to serve him. And throughout the book of Job, Job brings forward examples of this fear that he has for the Lord. In Job chapter 29, verses 15 to 17, we read of him testifying that he was the eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, a father to the needy, and one who searched out the cause of strangers. Or in Job chapter 31, verses 38 to 40, he ends his speech by stating, If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. And there are many, many other examples, but I think you get the point that Job's life is one characterized by obedience, love, and service directed to the Lord of his salvation. Yes, that's right. Job, too, is in need of salvation because he knew himself to be a sinner. We know this because he admits to it himself. We find him repenting at the end of the book, Job chapter 42, verses 5 to 6, saying, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is a great man for sure, but he is a man at best. And therefore, he too is one that needs forgiveness and redemption from sin. But that dependence on the Lord for forgiveness and redemption is part of what makes him so great. Because dependence on the Lord for that is always first when considering what it means to fear the Lord. And in his humility, Job's overall tendency is to not act immorally before his God. Instead, he desires to obey him and sets that desire into action. This is what his life is all about. God is that great to him, and so he lives obediently. And because this is so, it results in him being declared one of the most righteous men of all time. Now, that isn't my own assessment, but instead comes from the very mouth of God. In Ezekiel chapter 14, God places Job in the ranks of two other men, Noah and Daniel. And while pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, he states in verses 19 and 20, Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. 
God calls out Job's righteousness and he places him alongside these other righteous men. Noah was blameless in his own generation and spared from God's catastrophic flood. Daniel was found blameless during the Babylonian exile and saved from the lion's mouth. And just like these men had the Lord's attention, Job, well, Job does as well. And the Lord, he seems to be especially proud of this God-fearing man. In Job chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord speaks with Satan. And soon after finding out that he was roaming on the earth to and fro, he asks his enemy point blank, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. The Lord could have asked Satan about anything at all, but his attention is on Job. And it is because Job is blameless, upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. The Lord is proud of the man that he has become. And remarkably, this fear of the Lord has even been tested. Of course, we know of the trial that comes upon Job at the end of chapter 1, when he's stripped of everything he has. But have we ever stopped to consider the testing Job went through prior to all that? It was a test in the complete opposite direction. Job was tried to see just how he would respond to his abundant wealth. In verse 2 and 3, we get a description of it, and it includes 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. What we have here in verse 3 is an enterprise, or we might even say a business empire. His wealth is on par with one of those Time Magazine's Persons of the Year, an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos. And just for a point of comparison for us, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, we read of one of David's enemies, a man by the name of Nabal, and he is described as very, very rich. Nabal owned 3,000 sheep, and Job has 7,000, more than double. And with such a massive flock, Job and his servants can shear off their wool and sell it for profit, increasing his fortune exponentially. And those 3,000 camels there, they suggest he's engaged in some type of caravan trade, most likely running cargo from east to west, which means even more income. And then there's the agricultural sector of his business. Those 500 pairs of oxen are plowing his acres and acres of land, helping him produce crops year after year. Job's earnings are flowing in from everywhere. And the empire is so large, and Job has become so rich, that the temptation to love that wealth more than the Lord is a very, very, very real thing. Yet, that never happens. He testifies to this in Job 31 verses 24 and 25, and says, If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because 
my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much. And then in verse 28, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. The external wealth of Job is very great, but his internal wealth is even greater because he is a man that fears God. Everything is secondary compared to the Lord above. And therefore, the lure of the world can't touch his heart. It's already occupied by the one he fears. And this makes Job great because he fears the one who is greater. Brothers and sisters, may I ask, what we're prioritizing in our lives. Is it wealth, power, prestige, fame? Or is it that our priority is in line with Job's? Would those who know us well say our greatest concern is fearing the Lord? That we are still depending on him for salvation and forgiveness? That we are desiring to obey him, to love him, and to serve him? And that we are putting that desire into action. We must all do some honest reflection and, and ask whether that is really the case for us. Because we are God's people, his servants, just like Job. And therefore, we have good reason to follow his example and be God-fearers ourselves. Upright and turning from evil in our very own generation. We have the opportunity to be great in the eyes of the Lord during our day. But that means we each need to be those that fear him. This is what will make us truly great, church. Continuing on with verses 4 and 5. The word of God reads as follows. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. God fears concern themselves about others' spiritual standing. In Job's case, he cares deeply about whether or not his children are right with the Lord. Mere speculation drives him to see that they're consecrated, and so he offers up for each of them a burnt offering. And in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, we're given actually the purpose of the burnt offering. It says this, If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, I'm not exactly sure how Job came to know that a burnt offering is needed to be accepted by God, especially since the law hadn't been given yet. 
The text doesn't really say so. What I do know is that Noah and Abraham had offered burnt offerings themselves before the law was even given. So perhaps it was knowledge being shared amongst the peoples at that time. Nevertheless, Job did know to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And he does so in case his children sinned against God. I think this really shows just how much Job fears the Lord. Because his fear of concern is not just for himself, but for others that have to answer to their creator. He wants them to be atoned for and to be made right with God. So where exactly did these children go wrong? Uh, For all Job knows, uh, they didn't. He's just speculating. Since his sons can provide feasts for their siblings, they're most likely very, very rich too. Yet, we don't see them fighting over money or who has what. All of the siblings were in attendance at these parties. And these brothers are generous and kind, so much that they include their sisters in their festivities. But even though the relationships are good among these siblings, Job knows that sin can hide in the recesses of anyone's heart. His worry is that While they were eating, drinking, and having a merry old time, they sinned by cursing God in their heart. And unlike today, cursing the Lord isn't taken lightly. In fact, the people had such reverence for God at this time that they created a euphemism for cursing God. Instead of curse God, they would say, bless God instead. For those of you that have your ESVs, if you look down at verse 5, you'll notice a footnote connected to the word curse. And it says there that the original Hebrew has the word bless instead of the word curse. The thought of cursing God was so negative, so horrible, that they would use the opposite word instead to try and lessen the negativity. But no matter how it's expressed, The Bible calls cursing God for what it is. It is wickedness. I won't have you turn to it, but Psalm 10.3 says this. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. There again, you'll find that footnote along with curse that says the original Hebrew has blessed instead. And this time, God's word links that cursing slash blessing with the pride and greed of the wicked. Moreover, the one cursing the Lord is said to be renouncing him, meaning that he doesn't seek the Lord. In their heart, they're saying, there is no God. But God says, I am who I am. God is, and he is the ultimate reality Because all of reality is derived from the existing one, the I am. To curse God in such a manner is great wickedness because it's denying God's essence, which is his existence. This is what Job is supposing some of his children might have done after their parting. In all their affluence, 
he's concerned that they have said in their hearts, you know what? I don't need God. I just want to curse him and get him out of my life. I'm fine without him. Job knows that the heart of man can really come forward when the good times are rolling. He's aware a person's heart can ask, who is this Lord? And go on denying him when their stomachs are full and they're enjoying all their wealth. Because remember, this is how Job was tested. Yet he never went that route. He stayed true to his God. He didn't love his wealth. And so he desires to see and to know that his children are on that route too. He wants them to be following in his footsteps, passing their own tests, and leading a life that is blameless and upright. He desires to see them fearing God and turning from evil. And so he sends for them and has them purified immediately after the parties come to an end. And then offers burnt offerings for each of them. There's this urgency on Job's end with regards to their spiritual state. Whether his speculation is true or not, he wants to see them right with God. He's concerned about his children's holiness. And so he guides them to do what the Lord requires for atonement. And not a single child is missed. Verse 5 beautifully concludes with this statement about Job, that he did this continually. The profile of this God-fearing man ends with love on display. His concern for his children's spiritual state is urgent, and it is ongoing. Now, while we're not in Job's era, where we're needing to offer burnt offerings to show our concern for others' spiritual status... Nevertheless, the present day God fear should still be concerned about whether others are right with God. This concern can primarily be expressed through prayer and the conversations we have with others. Like Job, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, one of America's most renowned theologians, had a very similar concern for his children and their salvation. In a letter to his daughter Mary, he wrote to her saying, My greatest concern is not for your health or temporal welfare, but for the good of your soul. He also wrote to his son Timothy and said, His chief anxiety was for his and his siblings' salvation. Jonathan Edwards' evening discussions with his children would often lead to this subject. It killed him inside to think that his children had not embraced Christ. And at times he had to excuse himself from the conversation to conceal his emotions. He regularly took the time to talk to his children individually to discuss with them their soul's concerns. This he saw as his duty as a father and as a minister of the gospel. Like Job, Jonathan Edwards was a God-fearing man, and so he was concerned about others' spiritual standing. He wanted to see his children right with God. How about us, brothers and sisters? For you that are parents, what is it that you're most concerned about for your children? 
Is it their health? Their success in school, perhaps getting somewhere in their sport? A quick inventory of where you're having your child invest their time could help determine your greatest concerns for them. Are you guiding your children to the Lord like Job and Jonathan Edwards, to the one person they can find the grace and mercy their soul needs? Are you praying for them, conversing with them, and guiding them to the one place on earth where Christ is worshiped, exalted, and made known to the very household of God? Is their spiritual standing your greatest concern for them? Do you desire to see them right with the Lord? Or perhaps if they are saved, are you discussing with them their soul's concerns? And are you continuing to help them grow in their love and knowledge of the Lord? Are you encouraging them to fear the Lord? And for those of you without children, what's your concern like for those that God has placed in your life? Coworkers, friends, parents, family, do you have a concern with where their heart is at? If they are Christians, are you looking to see them turn away from sin? And are you pointing them to Christ's shed blood to cover that sin? And if they are not Christians, are you giving them what their soul needs? Are you giving them Jesus Christ? Is there an urgency to tell them about the good news that Jesus and Jesus alone can save them from their life of sin and an eternity in hell? If you fear God like Job, then there should be this corresponding concern for others' spiritual standing because the two go hand in hand. Now, I don't want us coming away from this sermon fixated on moralism, meaning I don't want us to go out those doors thinking, all right, it's time to shape up. I got to be a God-fearer. And then in our own weak efforts, try to be a God-fearer like Job. That would be to dismiss the great inheritance we have freely received as Christians. First and foremost, we must know that we have a righteousness that far surpasses that of Job's. Do we think of that, brothers and sisters? Because we should. Amazingly, each of us has the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness. Now, when the father asks, have you considered my servant so-and-so? He declares that we, we his people, are perfectly upright, blameless, and God-fearing because we are in his son, Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is in our own. It is the beautiful and perfect righteousness of the son of God. He paid the penalty on the cross to make it possible for us to have his righteousness so know and rejoice, Christian, that your righteousness is far greater than Job's. And secondly, we have who Job did not have. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And it is he who is our helper to live out lives of obedience, love, and servitude to God. We can be great God-fearers because we have God living and working inside of us. So know and rejoice, Christian, that your helper is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
Job didn't have who we have. Instead, he was found looking for him. Job was looking for a redeemer. In Job chapter 19, we read in verses 25 to 27, For I know that my redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Although Job was upright and feared God, he was looking for the sinless one who would take away the sins of the world and bring about his resurrection. Jesus Christ is the greater Job. He was completely holy in all his thoughts, words, and deeds. There was never a moment in his life where he did wrong or was not pure. He was flawless. His will was always aligned with his father's, and he never needed a burnt offering to cover over his sin. Instead, he became the ultimate burnt offering that would permanently deal with his people's transgressions. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then repent of sin and turn to him by faith today. He will cover over all your sin, the sin that has come forth from your mouth, the sin put on display in your evil actions, and that sin that runs wild in your heart. Yes, even those times that you curse God can be cleansed by Jesus' blood shed for you. For his death and his resurrection are exactly what is needed for you to be forgiven and to be made right with his Father. Trust in Christ and you will begin to fear God like you never have before. And Christian, know that your Savior was a God-fearer himself. He was all about depending on the Father. He did nothing on his own authority, but spoke only what the Father taught him. And he lived a life of obedience, love, and servitude like no other before him and no other since. If Christ was a God-fearing man, then how much more should we be? brothers and sisters, continue to follow after Christ and let the Holy Spirit form in you into his greatness. Let him form you into a great God-fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of your servant Job and even more so, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. You fall so short of Job's character, let alone your son's. We in our wickedness curse you at times instead of fearing you. You ask us to be blameless and above reproach, yet we live as if you don't exist. May your Holy Spirit work in us and produce the fruit of righteousness that comes only through our great Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be people characterized by a fear of you. And may that fear of you cultivate a concern for the spiritual state of others. Not so that we can brag about how good and godly we are, for we can only boast about you and the glorious grace your Son provides. May our good deeds glorify your name alone, and instead of cursing you, may we truly bless you. I pray all this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.